You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Matthew. Here's Nate. Matthew chapter 27, verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock, and he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. So up to this point now, we've studied or seen the trials, the betrayal, the beating, the scourging, the inspection of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, and some of the details that surrounded that horrible moment, but that wonderful moment in so many ways for us, where the thing that the enemy intended for evil, God used for great good. And we've touched on some of those elements very lightly. But here now in verse 57, we move from the crucifixion to the burial of Jesus. Now, this is interesting because in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul clarifies for the Corinthian church the message of the gospel. And he says that it's that Jesus died and was buried and rose. In other words, the burial portion of Jesus's death experience was and is a part of the gospel message, perhaps because so many people would assume that it was the resurrection account was a fraudulent account, you know, because who has ever experienced that kind of message, a religious leader dying and then coming back to life? But here you have someone who was actually, literally dead and actually, literally buried and actually, literally rose from the grave. And so the burial portion is included in this story because it's a part of the gospel message that Jesus was buried. Now, who was he buried by? We learn here in verse 57 that you have this man named Joseph of Arimathea. He's an interesting man for a lot of different reasons. First of all, we discover that he was a disciple of Jesus in verse 57, but according to John's gospel, he was a secret disciple. He loved the Lord, he was interested in the Lord, but he, you know, had some reservation about being public with his devotion to Christ. We know that he was a rich man. He was a prominent member of the council, according to Mark 15 and Luke 23. Isaiah 53 verse 9 prophesied that Jesus would be buried with the rich in his death. And so this man who owned a very nice tomb that, that no one had ever been buried in before, he donates his tomb unto the Lord, but a, a secret disciple. And I, I think that this should be a, a little bit of an encouragement to 
men and women who are in high positions of authority and responsibility who love the Lord and are devoted to the Lord, but, you know, there's an inability, so to speak, for them to, you know, just be as as overt as maybe they would like to be. Joseph couldn't live the life that Peter lived. He couldn't live the life that the rest of the disciples had lived. He was a secret disciple, but this event, the cross of Christ, stirred a boldness inside of him. And in one sense, he outed himself by even asking for the body of Jesus to bury him. So even though he was a secret disciple, he was a brave man. The cross emboldened him just as it emboldens us today. And when you think of the cross of Jesus, there should be a boldness that comes over your own heart as you see the incredible courage of Christ. Now, we learned that the way that he buried him was through this wrapping of the body of Jesus, like mummification almost. He wraps him in a clean linen shroud. And from John 19, verse 39, we learned that around 100 pounds of spices would be used in this burial process. So he's just an honorable man, generous man, loving on the Lord, giving him this new tomb that Jesus would only be using for just a few days. And so they rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Stone, you know, perhaps almost two tons in weight would have been rolled against the entrance of this tomb. Uh, So think of a cave kind of thing. Now, Mary Magdalene, verse 61, and the other Mary were sitting there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, well, he was still alive. After three days, I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. So Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting the guard. Now this is fascinating because even the disciples seemed a little bit clueless as to Jesus's message concerning the resurrection. But these chief priests and Pharisees, these religious leaders, they knew that Jesus had hinted that after three days he would rise. So they go to Pilate. They say, hey, listen, you know, we don't want some big, you know, story to get out there. We don't want these guys to come and steal the body. So, you know, give us a guard so that we can protect the tomb for three days. And And Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. And they went to the tomb and secured it by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So some have tried to say that this was Pilate's way of saying, hey, listen, you have temple guards, just go use your Jewish temple guards. But it seems apparent that Pilate actually gave them Roman trained official guards. These are men who would die if they did not fulfill their mission. And they also 
sealed the tomb, an official Roman seal with this hot wax put upon it that would keep it from, it would basically making the tomb a tamper resistant scene. And so this would, for them, enable them to keep the disciples from being able to steal the body of Jesus. Now, verse 1 of chapter 28, it says that now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. You have to, of course, appreciate the wonderful devotion of these women. The, you know, male disciples, they weren't out there at the tomb on the first thing on Sunday morning to finish the burial preparations. You know, they had to bury him rather quickly because of the Sabbath and the Passover. So they head back to the tomb to see if they can get the tomb opened up so they can go in and finish the burial process. You just love the devotion of these women. And they see the tomb in verse 1. They go there and they experience this incredible earthquake. The stone is rolled back and they realize that Jesus is not there. The stone was not rolled back, by the way, in order to let Jesus out. In his resurrected body, the stone didn't need to be rolled away for him to be able to leave the tomb. Uh, he was able to pass through material substance, able to appear in rooms that had been locked and secured. And so the stone was rolled back so that they could see in and observe that Jesus was not there any longer. And the guards trembled as a result of this earthquake, the appearance of this angelic figure, and they became like dead men. They passed out. They couldn't handle the purity and the holiness of this angel, and they became like dead men. They'd seen a lot in their time, but they couldn't handle this, and they, they fainted. But the angel spoke to the woman and said, don't be afraid. You know, the message that will be repeated time and time again in the resurrection accounts from the angel, from Jesus, is the word, do not be afraid. A message that when you really think about the resurrection and what it means, should resonate inside the heart of every single Christian. I think so often our responses to attacks against our faith and our belief we, we meet them with so much fear that we tend to act like an animal backed in a corner. We get a little nasty, a little defensive. But listen, Jesus rose from the dead. We have nothing to fear. 
He's going to rule and reign forever. He is the resurrection and the life. Do not be afraid. His resurrection quenches the need for fear. And the angel says to these women, he is risen just as he said. Uh, he's conquered sin. He's conquered death. And he tells these women to go to Galilee and to tell the disciples to meet him in Galilee, just as he had previously said. So this was the you know, stated meeting place that they would gather together. Not that that would be the only appearance of Christ, but it would be one of the major appearances of Christ. It appears that it was there that the appearance to 500 people at one time, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 6, had occurred. And so he tells them to go and send that message. So verse 8, they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, verse 9, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. What an incredible story. Here they see Jesus risen from the grave. He greets them and they grab his feet and they begin to worship him. They begin to celebrate him. They begin to honor him. And notice that Jesus receives their worship. He does not reject it. He does not say, oh no, that's not the kind of thing that you should give to me. No, he embraces their worship and said to them in verse 10, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. So he refers to these disciples as his brothers, not men that should fear him because they denied him, but men who he wants to be reunified with. He wants to be restored to. And maybe there are those in your own life that you know that you need to extend that olive branch of restoration. Think of Jesus who, when innocent, was denied by those closest to him, yet he wanted to be reconciled to them. While they were going, verse 11, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if it comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Notice the question isn't, my goodness, he's risen. There was an angel. The tomb is empty. What does this mean? Maybe we've killed the Messiah. Maybe we should follow him and believe in him. No, their immediate response was, okay, well, let's figure out a way to silence this message. You, you know, the guards, I'm sure, thought, well, hey, these guys are religious. Surely they want to know this story. But instead of wanting to spread this message, these men wanted to hinder this message. And so they paid these guys off in order to silence them and also then 
protected these soldiers who should have died as a result of their failure to uh, protect the tomb. But, of course, there was nothing that they could do about it. And the message they were going to declare was, well, we fell asleep and his disciples stole the body. Which, of course, how in the world could you know such a thing? Now, verse 16, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. So here they go to the mountain which Jesus directed them to. This was going to be now a time of commissioning from Jesus toward his disciples. He's paid for the sin of the world on the cross. He has been buried. And now it's time for these men to see him in his risen state, but to be commissioned. Now, the other gospels expose us to other appearances of Christ in various rooms to Thomas on the road to Emmaus. He appears in many different ways, but this is the appearance that Matthew focuses on there in Galilee with the 11 disciples where he sends his men. But notice there in verse 17 that when they saw Jesus, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Just that simple phrase by itself is one of those phrases that just reeks of the authenticity of these New Testament accounts. If this was some kind of grand scheme to deceive the world, it would seem awkward for the gospel writers to insert such brutal honesty. You know, there they are seeing him, worshiping him, but some of them are doubting. They're actually doubting this resurrection account. And uh, it seems awkward that Matthew would put that in there, except for any other reason that that's what was happening. There were some who even in the midst of seeing him risen from the dead, were doubting that this resurrection had actually occurred. And when you put together all the different accounts in the various gospel records, you discovered that when Mary Magdalene first reported that she had seen Jesus risen from the dead, they didn't believe her. On the Emmaus Road in Mark 16, the Disciples there didn't recognize Jesus. Luke 24 verse 11 tells us that they, they thought it all sounded like idle tales. And in Luke 24, they still had a difficult time in verse 41, believing as he's there in the room. And of course, there's the story of Thomas who would not believe unless he saw the wounds and put his hands in the wounds of Christ. These weren't delusional men looking for any excuse to call it a resurrection. Just some guy who bore some semblance to Jesus and saying, you must be Jesus who rose from the dead. They weren't expecting it. They weren't prepared for it. They weren't prone to believe it. Doubt was their natural disposition which points to the veracity of this account in the first place. Now, verse 18, Jesus came and said to them there on that mountain, 
All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The reality is that Jesus is the king. The cross puts him in that position of commanding officer of place and position of authority. He is the head of all things, over all things to the church. All things are in subjection underneath him. He has the authority now to send these men and the authority to send us, but not only the authority, also the power. It's not just speaking of rank, but actual power to do the work. And Jesus looks at these disciples and says, listen, I have all of the rank to send you and I have all of the power to send you. I think sometimes we fixate ourselves upon the rank of Christ to send us. You know, well, he's in charge. He's God, the son, the second person of the Trinity. He tells us to go. So I must go kind of thing, which is true and right and good. But not only does he have the rank, he has the power, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He said, I will build my church. He said he would go with us. The authority is rank, but also power. He's going to give us the strength to do the work that he asks us to do. And that's what he alludes to in verse 19 when he gives us what many would call the Great Commission. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, there are a few things that are good to fixate ourselves upon in this commissioning of Jesus to, towards his disciples because this commission actually extends all the way to us in our modern era in a slightly different way than they originally received it, but not by much. We can receive this exact same commission. The first word of it is fascinating. It's the word go. Go, therefore, because I have authority, because I have rank, because I have power, I want you to go. I want you to go. Now, this, of course, sometimes is taken to mean to other nations, to other cities, and the planting of churches. And all of that is fine and good. And as I close out this particular study in the Gospel of Matthew, I would recruit, I would exhort, I would say, go. Some of you are wrestling with the call of Christ upon your life. He has died, he's been buried, he's risen from the dead, and he is looking for people who are loyal to him, who love him, who are abiding in him, that he can send into the outermost parts of this world, who can go into this world to make disciples, preach the gospel, plant churches. He is looking for people who will go. And so I would say, go, just as Christ said, go. But if we confine it to simply that, then I think there would be many of us who would be left behind and who would say, well, I don't think I'm to go to another continent, to another country, to another county, or to another city. 
And I think in another way, we need to understand the word of Jesus as, as meaning quite literally, as you are going. You know, as you're moving through this life, make it a priority of life to be making disciples. You're still a people who will go to the grocery store, who will go to the shopping centers, who will go to the workplace, who will go to school. And as you go, be about the process of making disciples. I find it interesting that that's exactly what he asks us to do. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. His aim isn't just simply conversion. His aim isn't just simply doing nice things and alleviating physical pressures from other people, social justice and the like. These are good things. Evangelism, one of the greatest callings of the church. Uh, social justice, a thing that a person that's been regenerated by the Holy Spirit should long to see. However, all of that ultimately is leading to the making of a disciple. This doesn't mean that we ignore evangelism or social work in one sense. In order to make a disciple, sometimes you have to do those things first. You can't make a disciple without seeing them converted. Sometimes you can't see them converted without ministering to them in some practical ways initially. But ultimately the aim is that of making disciples. Teaching people, Jesus says. Baptizing them. Now the baptism is one of the first things that he mentions. Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now baptism is often... Uh, downplayed in our modern era uh, because there have been those who have arisen who have said you must be baptized in order to be saved we then respond I think sometimes with you know uh, a sense of saying well you know it's not that big of a deal and it's not uh, it doesn't lead to salvation so you know uh, whenever you're ready kind of thing but originally baptism was such a public proclamation it was the sign that you belonged to Christ an external picture of the internal reality and so Jesus says listen this is part of what you do I think in one sense baptism is so much more powerful than we often think that it really is it is of course an outward sign of the inward reality of the gospel, that inwardly we have died with Christ, been buried with Christ, and have risen with Christ. And so we go into the water and come out of the water. We're changed. We went in dry. We come out wet. It's a way of saying to everyone else, hey, listen, this is what happened inside of my heart. But it's the first step of discipleship in someone's life. It's a way of saying, I am under new management. I've been bought by the blood of Jesus. And I think in one sense, there's a breaking from the world that occurs when a person is baptized. And so Jesus says, baptize them and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is his method of discipleship, is the ministry of teaching, giving the whole counsel of God's word. 
And Jesus announces to them as we close this gospel, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. His promise to them was that he would go with them. And he would go with them through the power of the Holy Spirit, who was with them and would be in them and would also rush upon them to empower them for works of ministry. Know here, as we close the Gospel of Matthew, that Jesus has accomplished what is needed for the world to be saved. And now he looks at us, his people, and says, Go into the world, make disciples of all nations, baptize them, teach them. I'm with you in that process to the end of the age. God bless you. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.